It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Mance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm here as always, Austin Peterson, one of the co-hosts, and co-host number two, Landon Mance from Las Vegas, Nevada. And we are excited to have on the show with us today, Jenny Cohen with Sussex Law out of Denver, Colorado. Jenny, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. And uh, I've, you know, full disclosure, I've spent an hour on the phone with Matt, so I know way more about you than you think I know about you. <laughs> um, and he has he has told me you are a rock star, and we're in good we're in good hands here. So <laughs> I don't know many husbands who wouldn't say their wife's a rock star, but uh, he's a little biased. Yeah, he. <laughs> He definitely <laughs> sings your praises. So uh, excited to have you on the show. What we typically do is have our guests tell a little bit about themselves personally before we jump into the business side. So, you know, tell us about your husband, Matt. Tell us how long you've been married. Tell us, you know, whatever else you'd like us to know about you personally and your family life. And, and then we'll jump in. Wonderful. Well, I have been practicing law here in Denver for about 20 years and uh, 2021 in addition to not being 2020, um, okay. will also I'm also going into my 20th year of marriage, and uh, we have one daughter who's six who will be 16 in March. Um, so that's been quite a fun challenge. Uh, in my spare time, I spend time with my family, and I spend a lot of time working with a volunteer puppy rescue here in town. So it's very frequent that I have foster puppies at my house, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> well, Landon and I are both dog lovers. We've, I, I've got a golden doodle. You've got a golden doodle too, right? That's right. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, so we're we're big dog lovers, and uh, and from a family standpoint, we talked about this a little bit before uh, the show kicked off, but. My 20-year-old son is in is in the room today, and you know he, he you're lucky he's not on screen because he'd probably be holding his forks up and making fun of the fact that you went to the University of Arizona. <laughs> so, well, I know he'd be in a good company. My family, I come from a long line of Sun Devil fans. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're a native Arizonan, correct? I am. I am born and raised. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm sure this yeah. time of year you you miss being in Arizona. I do, although it's going to be 60 degrees here in Denver today. So I can't complain. It's pretty yeah, nice. You can't beat that. And there's probably some yeah. snow-capped mountains off in the distance. And We got a lot of snow last week. So there certainly, there certainly is snow in the mountains. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I lived about uh, maybe a year and a half in Denver when I was in junior high school. My dad worked at the old Stapleton Airport. And, um, you know, the job didn't end up being what he thought it was going to be. So we didn't stay long. But I grew up outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, and the biggest frustration for me living in Denver was the fact that the mountains were so far off in the distance. In Salt Lake City, they're right on top of you. They're, we've got some friends in Salt Lake City, and they, um, they, they complain when they come here. It takes so long to get to the mountains because they can be skiing in 30 minutes. So yeah. it is very different, and it is very flat people are shocked. It's very flat. I mean, the mountains are here, but they're not right in the city. Yeah. So yeah, we definitely do not have Salt Lake or, 
or gosh, Provo. I remember going to Provo for the first time and saying, holy cow, the mountains just jut out of the middle of the street. Yeah. Uh, Boulder has a little bit more of that feel, but yeah, Denver feels very flat sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy juxtaposition for sure. And, you know, we, Landon and I both, so I, I said, I grew up in Utah, but Landon and I mm-hmm. both serve clients in Utah as well. Landon's wife is from Utah. And so we've, you know, we spend a lot of time there and, and the office that we so we're we're part of Lincoln Financial Advisors. We own our mm-hmm. own practices, but that's the the broker dealer. And so we use their office when we're in Salt Lake City. And their office there is literally a mile and a half from going up the canyon to Brighton and Snowbird oh. and Solitude. So it's it's so that beautiful. close. You can literally 10 minutes mm-hmm. leave the office and be on the slopes. That's crazy. Yeah. No, it's much further. And it feels like it's getting much further every year. Too many people have been moving here. So it takes a long time to get to the mountains. Yeah, it's crazy how much growth you guys have seen in Denver. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. It's sort of like it's been discovered. The weather is shockingly mild. People don't believe me. Um, as a as a native Phoenician, I don't love the heat, but I sure do love the sun. And so I get sort of the best of all worlds. I mean, you know, Salt Lake City weather is very similar. Yeah. Um, I just think that it's, you know, some of the best. If you want four seasons, it's hard to beat. It's gorgeous. It's sunny. We've got a lot to, a lot of beautiful uh, natural part, you know, national parks, as does Arizona. I mean, the Southwest is is a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, are part of Lincoln Financial Advisors or other groups that we work with that are, that are East Coast based and, and they'll, they'll come out for a conference. And I said, I'm not sure I'd come out because you may not ever go back when you discover how much right. better it is to live on the western side of the United States. You may not ever go back. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, we just don't we just don't have gray all the time. Yeah. We don't the snow doesn't hit in September or October and it's the same snow there in February. Yeah. You know, it's just filthy and it's I mean we don't know from that. So that's we're we're lucky. Yeah. We're lucky. Absolutely. Well, let, let's jump in and talk a little bit about what you guys do at, uh, at Sussex Law. So just kind of yeah. give us the, the overview of, of what it is that you guys do, specifically who you serve and what type of you know, transactions or, or whatever that you do. I'm sure yeah. our listeners will be excited to hear about this. We are, uh, we're a privately held business owner's boutique shop, and we really do hold ourselves out and, and fancy ourselves to be advisors for that mid-sized privately held business. And that can be everything from formation, although we don't usually get involved until a business is a bit more mature, but it can be everything from growth, strategic growth, incentive compensation planning, but oftentimes with an eye for what is your ultimate exit strategy. So within our firm, we have a employment litigator who does both employment transactional as well as litigation, complex commercial uh, litigation. Uh, My other partner is a 24-year real estate attorney, so focused mostly in development, covenants, a lot of construction of apartments with condo uh, redevelopments, conversions after certain uh, you know, tort liability periods have have closed for for developers. So we do, we try to do anything that a private business may be looking at having their transactional counsel or really their outside. We want to be their outside shop that they call 
hey, we've got a problem. We don't know if it's a problem, but can you take a look at it? Because again, much like you all, my goal is, okay, how can I give you the best representation? What does your, what does success in this business ultimately look like? And what does that look, you know, does that look like having a certain dollar amount in your bank account? Does that look like, like having enough money to run a charitable trust? Does that look like a business that you think that your children want to purchase? Does it look like a business that you've already identified the key employees that need, that you're going to, that you're going to sell to? What does it look like? Because if we're not thinking about those things, then we're probably not making decisions that go to the very core and the strength of building a better, more attractive company to whomever that buyer is. Even if you do end up doing a family transition, I will bet you dollars to donuts every single time. If you've constantly made at least part of your thought process, what does this do to increase value in the business? Even if you do an internal transition, you've increased the value. Yep. Agree a hundred percent. You know, Landon and I've been doing this long enough that we see that most business owners don't think that way. Um, I, I know that we definitely way too often use the phrase begin with the end in mind, right? Thank mm-hmm. you for to Stephen Covey for that. Um, but that really what that's that's really what it's about. And and you even said it like, so what if you plan to sell to a to an outside party and it ends up being a family transition? It, it's about having the planning steps throughout the entire process and building a company that has greater enterprise value so that you have options. Mm-hmm. When you look at the company, I've, d- I've done quite a bit of franchise work in my life, as is my husband. And, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times I'll say to, to entrepreneurs who will say, I want to franchise this. Well, well, tell me what it is you want to franchise. Well, it's my business. You've been representing me for a year, but, but yeah, but why? Why do you think franchising makes sense in this business? You franchise because maybe you don't have the human capital or the financial capital to grow. So let's really be strategic. And, and again, e- even if you don't ultimately decide to do a franchise, you've at least gone through the methodical process of saying, is all of the information and all of the value of this business inside my head as the founder and the principal? And what have I, do, what have I done to cross, to cross train and cross manage and bring people in? You know, I think as so often as entrepreneurs, which we all are, you know, I spent a small amount of time in a large international firm and helped start their Denver office here. And what I realized is this is not a good fit for my type of client. Um, you know, my client doesn't get treated with, I think, the level of respect that a small business owner deserves. They get sort of treated like they're the small player. And I, I yep. frankly think they should be always the, the, the they're, they're my ideal client. I yep. really enjoy working with them for a multitude of reasons. But but what about your, you know, when, when a contract comes in, what is the process? You know, if you, even if you're the founder of that business, you don't need to sign every agreement. You don't need to negotiate every single pricing. You need to bring other people into the mix to help share the knowledge. So there's obviously just a, a multitude of things to think about. But again, that starting with the beginning in mind, starting with the end in mind, it really is. It, I couldn't agree with that more because I just think that you end up making better business choices. Yeah, agreed. So I'm going to jump on a comment here real quick, and then I know Landon wants to ask you about you know what business owners should be doing to to get ready to sell. But um, you know the the comment that you made there in they don't have to sign every contract, they don't have to do this, they don't have to do that, and that is probably one of the the biggest roadblocks that business owners put up in growing their business larger 
is feeling like mm-hmm. they do have to do everything. They do have to control everything and delegating and allowing other people to do things to where they really, and this is a phrase that Landon and I use quite a bit as well, is they the ultimate goal in terms of building enterprise value is that the owner becomes operationally irrelevant, right? Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. So, yeah. And that is a hard thing for business owners to wrap their head around. You know, most entrepreneurs are control freaks. They want to control everything and they're concerned, right? Because this is their baby, right? Most of their net worth, if not all of it, is tied up in their business. And so it's a tough thing to get past. But uh, if you can get past it, that's where we can really build some some great value for them. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And oftentimes I tell clients, even when we're in the middle of a transaction, you know, maybe they've worked for the last 50 years and they think oh, they can't wait to be home. And I'll say, okay, so this business is so much more than a job. This business, it has another seat at your dinner table. This business is oftentimes the other person in a marriage. I mean, the business takes on such a personal and emotional attachment because, and it should, you're, you built it. You know, especially, and that's that's one of the reasons, frankly, I don't like working for large publicly traded companies. I like working for entrepreneurs because there's there's an emotional connection. Something made you get into this business and something has caused you to drive to succeed in it. And even if you're struggling, the business is top of mind. So it's absolutely emotional. And and we'd be remiss if we don't address it as such. I mean, it is a part of the family. If you're an entrepreneur, you, that business comes home with you each night around the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And and before you think you're ready to walk away, you may want to check with your spouse to make sure that they're ready for you to be home every day, right? I have had a couple of calls from some, um, from some, it has been wives who've said, okay, so now we have more money than we know what to do with Jenny, but can you find him something to do? So he's not <laughs> here all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have started to sort of say, okay, well, so what are you interested in? Is your spouse ready to have you home all the time? <laughs> the, yep. the ultimate test, Jenny, is when when uh, when a business owner is saying that they're, you know, they think they're ready to to move yeah. on. The ultimate test: send them home, turn, tell them to turn their cell phone off for one week. They cannot accept any business phone calls oh. or emails. And and see how they uh, see how they take that test. And uh, if they can't make it that one week, then uh, they're not probably ready. not quite ready to uh, transition out of the business. <laughs> uh, I I'm curious. Um, I want to know um, Sussex Law. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I had to Google this. Full disclaimer. Does it originate from the con- uh, the county or the bird? In England, so I wish it. I wish it had a better story. It actually does have a pretty good story. <laughs> so um, we're down on Larimer Street in in Lower Downtown in Lodo, Denver. Um, and since the pandemic, uh, they've shut off all pedestrian traffic, all all vehicle traffic, and now it's just a pedestrian walking mall. It's actually quite lovely. But the building that we're in is the Sussex Building, and. Um, the reason that the story is interesting, at least for what we're talking about, is is never did I think I would be in a situation where I had to walk in the shoes of I had to I had to live the experience that many of my clients at least try to avoid or or caution against, which is the death of a partner. So 
Uh, my, I had a partner. I came, I, I was out of pi- private practice. I was in house with a financial services company. I had no interest of ever coming back into private practice. I had done my stint at a large firm. I realized that wasn't a good fit for me. And uh, my very dear friend asked me to come back into private practice. We worked it out. I ultimately decided to come over. And he and I said, I don't want a firm that's got a bunch of names in it. I just, I don't want to fight about whose name is first. I don't. And so we just sort of randomly picked it, the name of the building. Well, fast forward two years, most fun I've ever had practicing law. His name was Tim Scott, and he passed very suddenly in 2016 at 43. So it was horrible. But what was also fascinating is we had not finished our buy-sell agreement. So I tell people, you know, back to your question about what, you know, what do you do to get your house in order? If it's a if it's a solo ownership, that's a different story. But if you have different partners, having documents to sort of appropriately govern what happens, because as much as you like your business partner's spouses, you don't necessarily want to be in business with them. Um, and so it was a really, it was a very tough, but also very illustrative and illuminating experience for me. Because when I come to, when I talk with business owners, um, that have some disparate owners uh, with a with a potential a potential for too many cooks in the kitchen or conflicts amongst the the owners. You know, I can really I know what I'm talking about when I say if you don't have an agreement in place, it can be really hard. And and I'm not talking not getting along. I'm talking totally unforeseen, awful, awful tragedies or things that are they, that are not expected well what happens to the business again coming back to this idea that i think it's difficult to look at these businesses and again probably because what what all of us do we get close to the business owners we understand why that business is passionate why they have a passion for it why they care about it and it becomes something that we care about by by extension as an advisor for that business owner um, knowing that their business is going to be well, even if they are no longer here, or there's going to be some resu- some resolve for their family, that's hugely important. And again, to your point, Austin, it continues to bolster the security and the integrity and the strength of that business. Because much like you've you've taken the institutional knowledge and the the brilliance of whatever the founder had you've spread that out you've cross trained you aren't stuck with a with a with a widget maker that doesn't make widgets the day after the widget founder is hit by a bus you have something that still has value and so all of those things i really do think come into to play with how do we make a bigger how do we make a stronger business we make a stronger business that's attractive to third parties and insiders by frankly making good sound business decisions. It's just a way. I mean, that's often how I think about it. It's another step in your process, be it contracts, be it insurance procurement, be it, you know, corporate governance, um, be it incentive compensation for who you deem to be a key employees. With each one of those things, at least add into your analysis, what does this look like? Does this strengthen the position of the company? Because if you're asking yourself those questions, you're ahead of, of 99% of most privately held business owners because they're so busy working on what's in front of them that they don't feel, and I, I feel like this sometimes, that I don't feel like I have the time to do the extra marketing or the 
the piece in the in the you know lawyers Colorado lawyer whatever the case may be because I'm so fixated on just getting my work done and making sure so it's it, it it's something that 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 business owners have to find the time to do again if they're not if they're not cook chef and bottle washer or whatever the saying is yeah. if they're not all of those things then they have time to do these other items which are really important to strategic growth yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I, I, you know, unfortunately, I've had a client that went through the same situation that you went through. And I had been talking to them for over a decade, right? And they were young entrepreneurs. And they were clients along the way. But you know, they were just building the business, there wasn't a whole lot there in assets, there wasn't much in complexity. But I said, Look, you, you have to have that buy sell agreement drawn up, first of all, and then and he said, oh, we've got it drawn up. I said, okay, but now you have to fund it with life insurance mm-hmm. and disability insurance. Yeah, yeah, I know, but we're young and cash flow and this and that. And I said, it, we're talking about pennies. You just need to do it. And so we finally start the process to actually doing it. So they start with three partners. They end up buying one out. It, it just wasn't working out. So the two got together and said, let's buy him out. And he agreed. He departs. And at that point, I said, okay, now we've, we've just changed the buy-sell agreement. This is the perfect time to do this. We start the process, literally. We're going through underwriting. We're starting you know, to, to get all the premium, all that kind of stuff put together. And 45-year-old, massive heart attack, and he's gone. And so now all of a sudden, you've got this one owner that's left, and it was never combative. They were always you know, really good friends. He was good friends with the the wife that survived him. Everything was good, except that she still sought, as she should, good legal representation. So what happens? He loses a partner. Buy-sell agreement wasn't funded. Now he's having to pay the spouse out with after-tax dollars over the next Mm -hmm. five years. And on top of that, because her lawyer did his or her job, he also then had to have life insurance and disability to cover if something happened to him before she was paid out. Yes. So it, it was the double whammy. Not only did he have to pay it out in after-tax dollars and it cost him a lot and made it so he couldn't grow his business the way that he wanted to because he's got all this money going out the door. He also then had to buy the insurance mandated due to the agreement so that it didn't happen again to the surviving spouse. So it, it, you know, people don't think it's that big of a deal and people think I'm young, I'm 43, you know, like your partner, I'm 45 in this situation. It, it's mm-hmm. just something that needs to be done early because it truly is pennies, right? I mean, he could have had $2 million in tax-free cash that was received to go to the spouse and he could, yeah, have, and he could have gone on, right? And everything would have been great. But instead he had to, he had to buy her out over five years and it was a, it was a detriment to the operations of the business because of it. Well, and, you know, an appropriately structured buy-sell, really thinking through what the company's responsibilities are, what the other shareholders' responsibilities are, ensuring that the obligations of the company are appropriately funded, but also those conversations, unfortunately, that go into crafting a comprehensive buy-sell, they're not very fun, right? They're not very fun to have, but they're a heck of a lot easier to have when you're not having problems versus, I mean, I've had two or three just in the last year where I've been talking to them for years. Two of them, I've drafted full buy cells and I couldn't get them to the signing table. And now we've got 
you know, it's, it's not a death or a, or a disability. So it's not insurable, but I could have had a Texas shootout provision where mm-hmm. one side, if you, if you can't get along, one side can make an offer, but in order to keep them honest, the, uh, the receiving, the recipient of the offer can flip the offer and say, okay, if it's what's good for the goose, you will buy me out at that same price. Now, again, I, I don't know that I've ever actually had someone truly exercise their rights in a shootout, but it's a huge hammer to get people to the bargaining table. And when there's nothing governing the relationship between the two parties, it is, it can be tough because things change, Yeah, you know, things change and you just don't know that you're always going to be in lockstep with your partner or partners. Yeah. Could, couldn't agree more. Landon, any comments before we go to break? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah that's a really great point. And my uh, question is, as advisors to privately held business owners, Jenny, how do we do a better job helping our clients avoid what, what you just you know explained there? So you you get a client to agree to do an, you know, uh, some kind of a, a buy-sell agreement or some measure that is going to help you know, de-risk their business, um, also at, make it more valuable. So how do we do a better job of advisors to get that client that you just described, how do we get them to come in to, you know, to sign the agreement? You know, so I, I guess this is kind of a rhetorical question, but also you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts if you got some there. I mean, what do we what do we do to do to do a better job for our clients in that regard? You know, it is that's such a good question because I struggle with it where I follow up. Did you guys sign? What's the status? It's it's become even more difficult and you know, since March, where you're not having as many face to face. Um, I don't have a wonderful answer, but what I would present is the transactions, especially from a planning standpoint, that I have m- most success. And it's one of the reasons that when we reconstituted the firm after Tim had died, I mean, I wanted to keep that Sussex name. But when I reconstituted the firm, one of the things I was trying to figure out is what is really, what is it we're trying to impress? And it really is where business and advisors come together. And so I do think that having a well-oiled team Because your lawyer shouldn't, you know, your business lawyer probably doesn't know anything about the estate planning piece, but they should be talking and your financial advisor should be in that conversation and your personal CPA should be in that conversation. Everyone should be, and it doesn't need to be laborious, but is it a one time a year touch base? Is it a, okay, we have certain deliverables. All right. Well then how do we get those accomplished? How do certain advisors maybe cooperatively work together to say, okay, you know, the folks at Lincoln Financial, your CPA firm, and someone from my law firm, we're all going to be there to to sign annual documents. Um, you know, ideally, it's you know, I'll ping my clients. Hey, it's time for your annual meeting. Do you, do you you want me to prepare minutes or resolutions? But but I wonder if there's an oppor- a really a good opportunity to plan annual meetings where there's a host of these kinds of issues. And even if, because a lot of times, a lot of times I think the reason that they're not signed is people are busy. I think also it's a real uncomfortable topic. So even if that, even if we don't get it signed the first year or the first conversation, 
Maybe it gets signed in the second or third, and God forbid something happens in, in between that. But I agree with you. There, there probably needs to be a better process through all the advisors. And I think that comes with communication as well. How can we be a well-oiled machine? Having all these advisors doesn't mean you have to pay through the nose for all of them. What it means is hopefully they're going to end up saving you money, time, anxiety, energy, and headaches, right? That's, we should all be doing this to help our clients realize some wonderful ultimate outcome and, and do it in the most efficient way. Are they protected from liability? What does their tax liability look like? Again, if they're interested in, in funding a, a, a charitable something, let's go ahead and really talk about setting that up well before you're under an LOI. Because once you're under an LOI, we're a stop from a whole variety of other funding mechanisms. So, so let's think through, because then even as your lawyer, if I've sat in those conversations, not all of them, again, I think it can be done reasonably, but if I've thought, sought in our, you know, our annual state of the union with the client, um, and, and I've heard about certain things that are of importance, that helps, even if it's personal, that helps me from a corporate representation standpoint, because I still, I know what areas are of great importance when we do go look to go to market. Yep. So now she's put it on the T land and bring it home. Hit it out of the park. She just, she basically just said exactly what we do every single day in our practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the points that you're making here are all excellent points, super relevant to the work that we do. And I, I agree with you, Jenny. It is, it is not an easy task by any means to communicate the value in planning to our business owner clients because they are of that mentality that I'll deal with it when, when it comes up, right? And mm -hmm. you've mentioned this a couple of times, so I'll, I'll tell a quick story. Um, you mentioned uh, setting up some kind of uh, charitable vehicle or doing some charitable planning for those business owner clients that are you know so inclined. And um, here's a good example. Uh, I have a client that owns uh, several uh, very successful uh, fast food uh, franchise franchises. He is charitably inclined. He's planning to sell off some of his stores in the next couple of years. And so one of the strategies that we have considered uh, in coordination with his CPA and his attorney, selling some of the shares of his private business to his donor advised fund ahead of time in an effort to minimize some of the tax bite when that sale occurs, he, unbeknownst to us, actually ended up selling an unplanned sale of one of his stores and trying to take advantage of that strategy at the last minute is it's unavailable. You can't, you can't do that. The IRS, right. the IRS does not allow you to do that when you're, you know, at the finish line. So it was a perfect example of trying to help a client understand that when it comes to tax savings, and other yes. strategies that we can implement for you, you cannot do those on a reactive basis. You have to do them on a proactive basis because if you don't, a lot of them become obsolete, right? So it's about 
trying to help our clients understand the value in doing planning before they make some of the biggest financial decisions that they will ever make in their lives. I had someone uh, come to me recently and I'm working with them. They're a C-Corp. The owner purchased the equity of this corporation about six years ago. Uh, Always has had a view for sale. And I, you know, I had to say gently, but I said, I didn't feel, I wish you would have come to see me five, six years ago. Because we could talk about what the tax effect is in a corporation and C-Corp versus an S-Corp. And what that's going to look like down the road and what limitations that's going to create for you in the structure of this sale. And so, you know, even things like that, is there a tax advantage that I can take advantage of now, especially if I'm planning on selling? Does a conversion make sense? Is this the right vehicle? Um, You know, what should my board of uh, directors look like? Uh, How much, uh, you know, how much indebtedness? Uh, make sense uh, on a on a business of my kind. It, it, you know, I just think that there's a variety of things that people don't think affect the ultimate el- outcome, but they do. They affect the ultimate dollars and cents and how much you're actually going to be able to leave the table with, which is a big deal. I mean, to most people I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And it's 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 hard because the trajectory of this planning work it's kind of like the hockey stick, right? Where Everything's all fine and dandy. The business is going well, but to 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 execute on this type of planning work, like it's going to be kind of hard and not really fun while we mm-hmm. do this. But ultimately, this creates you know long term value you know for your company. So um, this has been fantastic so far, Jenny. If we can just pause for a moment here to hear a quick uh, commercial from one of our uh, our great sponsors. And then let's get into, as we know, a deal is done in the terms and we want to hear, you know, uh, your thoughts on that. So uh, we'll take a quick break here and then we'll jump back into it. Whether you're an established local company or a brand new startup, you can count on GBS to be part of your family. We're not just any benefits consulting firm, we're GBS. We have nearly 30 years of experience in group benefits, a strong sense of purpose, and it shows. GBS, believe in something better. GBSbenefits.com. All right, welcome back, tycoons. We are here today with a a definite tycoon, rock star, dynamic Jenny Cohen with uh, Sussex Law out of Denver, Colorado. And, uh, you know, we've only been going about 37 minutes so far, but I tell you, I think we've unpacked about $10,000, $20,000 worth of advice already. So let's <laughs> let's keep it going, Landon. Yeah, absolutely. Jenny, as you know, probably even better than us as an attorney advising and guiding clients through, you know, different transactions, that the the terms of a deal are so critical, uh, especially for, uh, for the seller, which, uh, I don't know if I'm assuming you, you probably represent them a little bit more on the, on the sell side, but maybe you do some buy side work as well. So share with us, what are, you know, maybe the top three most important things that, uh, a business owner needs to consider, uh, when it comes to the terms of a deal in order to ensure the successful outcome for what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Um, 
You're right, Landon. I do represent most of my clients, a, a, a slight majority, probably about 70% are sell-side. So as far as the, I can, I couldn't agree with your statement more. It does come down to the terms and it really comes down to, I guess I would say there's one preliminary gate in item. Again, I think that you should always plan for any kind of structure, but if we're actually down to brass tacks, there's pretty different terms that I think are hurdles in transactions. If it's an internal buyout versus a third party. And then there's further amount of further, you know, complications if it's a third party strategic, someone that's already in the space and they're either creating a largest the larger jurisdictional footprint or they're adding some service to an existing line versus a financial buyer. So I think that it can be different depending on what kind of structure. But I will tell you the pieces as a sell-side attorney when I'm representing a seller, buyer's counsel prepares documents And even though it tends to be at the very end of the transaction document, as an attorney, the very first section I go to is the indemnification section. And the reason I go there is I want to know who, what, where, when, right? I want to know who is it that the buyer is looking to indemnify for certain claims? What's the scope of that indemnity? Is there a cap or a limitation, a deductible? And how long will their liabilities survive the transaction? So I would say indemnification, um, the scope of the indemnification, even if it's an asset sale in a business and the entity is technically the seller, in a privately held business, expect that the buyer is going to want someone or some group of people to be personally backing those indemnifications. So who is that going to be? How is that going to be funded? Obviously, that can look different in a structure where the seller is, say, selling to someone internally and they're funding the transaction so they have a carryback note and maybe still continued involvement. But but what is the seller's liability in whatever scope that looks like? Is that indemnification? Is that a funded indemnification? Is it money off the top? Is it money that has to be paid? Um, do the individual owners have joint and several liability? So I think indemnification is a really big one. Another huge item, and I think we're going to see even more of it if we do have a little bit more of a downturn, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But I see it often in recessions, which is an increased use of earnouts. And by that concept, I it really is, okay, seller, we're buying your business. And, you know, as a lawyer, again, my goal and my job, as I see it in the seller's capacity, is to ensure accuracy and, and completeness in the document so as to avoid any post-closing indemnification claims um, that are otherwise avoidable. In that, if there is, so an earnout oftentimes says, okay, seller, I'm going to buy your business for X dollars, um, but I'm going to only, I'm going to buy your business for 10 million, but I'm going to buy you, I'm going to pay you seven and a half million, and I'm going to carry back the remaining two and a half million dollars, provided you meet certain hurdles certain projections, uh, necessitating that person's continued involvement. Um, I would really make sure that you know what you're doing when you're looking at those earnouts. Earnouts can be very tricky. Oftentimes a well-crafted earnout, frankly, is should be aspirational. So and and I think that dovetails nicely. So earnouts are critically important, how they're measured, 
is it subjective or objective criteria? How testable is it? Um, and how reasonable is it? And if it's truly aspirational, is it being treated as such? And I think that dovetails into my third co- my third issue, which I think is purchase price. So have a good idea of what your market is garnering. Um, if your market looks at multiples of EBITDA, you know, again, that doesn't necessitate if your business doesn't already require doing a full-blown third-party audit. But what it may require is having a good CPA firm coming in and reviewing your books and giving you good analysis and good advice on what they think your EBITDA looks like, adjusted and unadjusted. And and by keeping involved in, be it a trade association, be it members of other people that are in your, whatever your community, whatever your business community is, so that you can keep your finger on the pulse of what are other privately held businesses like mine? What are they receiving in third-party transactions? And are those strategic buyers, again, I'm always going to advise private held business owners. If you know someone else in your space, wherever they are, and they get acquired by someone who's acquiring those businesses, have those conversations because your business may be the next one and it may make as much sense. And gosh, that's nice when that happens because you don't have to get a banker and you don't have to pay broker fees and, and you know, and you, and you're dealing with someone who, who knows what they're doing. So um, I would say purchase price, earnouts, and then the scope of your indemnification. Yeah, Austin, I'll, I'll I'll make one comment and I'll uh, I'll kick it back over to you. Yeah, um, I would say to our listeners that if you take one thing away from this conversation, that it needs to be, uh, you need to talk to a a Jenny of the world way 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 before you get into the due diligence process uh, of of selling or buying a business because she has made so many great points that uh, can only be uh, successfully addressed um, in, in preparation for something like this, not in, in reaction to something like this, because a lot of, you know, people say that, you know, lawyers, you know, kill deals and it's no, they don't kill the deals. They just expose the uh, major issues with it and the deal falls apart because the preparation work wasn't done. So my point is contact Jenny or another M&A attorney months and months ahead of uh, (laughs) before you, you sign that uh, LOI or, or or something to that nature. So. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I I was actually just going to jump in real quick on the earnout portion of what you said, because I do believe that that's going to happen you know, much more often going forward. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it's pretty easy to get capital these days. There's quite a bit out there. Interest rates are low. There are options still, but um, yeah. there can also be a strategic reason to use an earnout on both sides, quite frankly. And yep. if they're structured appropriately, then, you know, it can it can build an, a nice option for both, right? A protection mm-hmm. on the buy side, a nice potential kicker on the, on the, up, on the yep. sell side. Right. And so it's we have to remember when we're structuring these deals that when anybody buys a business, they're buying it for the future cash flows of that business, what they believe it's going to go be able to do going forward based on what the new buyer brings to the table, how they're going to invest their dollars, what they're going to do for growth, you know, all those sorts of things. But then that protection is, gosh, this guy's been running the business for 20 years and he did a pretty darn good job of it. And I'm buying it for a reason. So 
you know, if I keep him on and give him kind of a bonus for staying on and pay mm-hmm. him more or her more for doing certain things in the business, it, it's a great thing on both sides. And, and I think it can yes. be a very good strategic decision, regardless of how easy it is to come up with capital or what the economic conditions are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, and I know formation isn't a big thing for you guys, but you know, if, if because of the experience that you've had over the last 20 years working with business owners in different stages of their business, what advice would you give to a, a business owner that's that's looking to start a business? Like, what do they need to think about? Oh, this one's actually relatively easy for me <laughs> because I spend what feels like an inordinate amount of time trying to undo these. Do not give out ownership interest in your company like it is Tic Tacs. Do not do that. <laughs> That devalues your company. That devalues you. Don't do that. Because even if, even if, and I understand capital crunches, um, I understand wanting to lock down talent. So, So again, let's figure out how we can do that in a creative manner that maybe doesn't necessarily give someone a seat at the table. Because I will tell you, there's nothing that's more frustrating than being a founder where you gave 5% to an employee you liked 15 years ago, and now he's being a wrinkle in the deal. So please, please, please do not give out ownership interest in your company unless it is duly, it is, it is appropriately structured. You've really thought through it. And is there another way to accomplish this? You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of profits interest. I'm a big fan of bonuses that track uh, performance. Look, I, I think we can set all of the appropriate incentives, but don't offer people ownership interest, actual equity ownership interest, unless it makes sense. And I'm not saying that that's a one size fits all by any stretch of the imagination. There are plenty of transactions that it makes sense, but, but make sure that it makes sense because when you give that person interest, one, it's a taxable event for them, but two, you're now in business with them. Are you ready to be in business with them? Even if you say, yeah, but I have all the voting interest or I have this Yes, but it, could we have accomplished that through some other mechanism short of giving away equity? And I think so often I've had, uh, candidly, one of the reasons a lot of times I don't do a lot of the, the startup side is I've been really involved in quite a few development, real estate, a lot of construction-related businesses and financial services. I haven't been as involved in my history with, with tech. And part of it is, you know, I had a few clients early on where it's brilliant, complex structures. And I'll say, okay, but why? Why are, I don't care that you're giving class D interest to this person. Great. We have a really, really complex waterfall. Why are you doing that? When we could have, we could do this. Doesn't this seem, you, you only pay them if you have something and this seems to track and their primary goal or primary objective is business development. So this seems to link perfectly, but don't, Please do not willy-nilly give away ownership interest in your company because it rarely ends up well. And again, do it after you've talked to someone and you understand what the ramifications are. Yeah. No, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, your experience is not typically in tech, and that's that's where this is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. We're in this economy that everything kind of gets talked everything that gets talked about is Amazon and Facebook and Google and you know, all these tech companies that are out there and the way that they got started was giving away that equity. That's right. I I tell people all the time, I've got members of my Vistage group, 
there are lots of ways to build a business without giving away equity, without without Correct. even taking on venture debt or, you know, any of those yes. types of options that are out there. There's a lot of ways to do it. Just make sure that you know what you're doing. And, and there has to be a strategic decision for you to do that, not just, well, this is easy to uh, an easy way to raise capital or easier. And I guess it, just one other piece to add to that is, and I think it 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 it's a companion, which is really to the extent possible, have an understanding of who you're going into business with. You know, if you're if you're in a professional services, an accounting firm or a law firm or architecture engineering, a lot of times you're you're hired and maybe you you that's how you continue your career. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're creating a business or you're going in to buy a business with someone else, really make sure that that person is the right person. So for example, I, I've had these very awful and uncomfortable conversations, but I've said point blank, hey guys, so I've tried to bring up the buy sell three or four times. You're both so uncomfortable. You're having trouble looking at each other. That to me screams, and I'm. This is the only piece of my counselor title that I'll use. You know, in the counselor capacity. But if we can't have these conversations, and things are good, that that's a problem. So we need to we need to unfortunately try to figure out how we have those conversations. And if you're in business with people that you can't have conversations like that with, then. That makes me a little bit concerned for you. So, so again, all things being equal, if you're on the front end, here are some things to think about. Yeah. So now you've got me nervous about this merger with Landon that I've got going right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not just the fact that he's got that great head of hair that I'm jealous of every day. There's there's other hidden See? hidden problems. Any remember uh, client attorney privilege? Okay, let's uh, let's there you go. <laughs> Oh, goodness. All right. Well, I got to tell you, most people do not put fun and being an attorney in the same sentence. So let's wrap this up with you telling us about what's fun about what you do. So it's I I am in such a unique position. Um, I went to law school and was trained to be a litigator, like every attorney leaves law school trained as. And I realized really early on if I have to have these knockdown, drag out, awful fights about discovery, about turning over a certain document, this is everything about this is destructive. And I was fortunate enough to move into transactional work. And what I found is, oh my gosh, so when we sit down, we being myself and the counsel on the other side, we both want the exact same end result. We may have different concepts about how we get there. But from the very first moment, from inception, we're all on the same team. So um, that is so fundamentally different than what most lawyers get to do um, or do for a living. That at the end of, you know, at the at my closings, those are celebratory events. And as a lawyer, we don't get to be involved in many celebratory events unless it's taking someone down. In mine, <laughs> they tend to be pretty productive and and wonderful. And um, yeah, I and this is public now. I just. So I just closed a deal a couple of weeks ago where I represented the Tattered Cover here in Denver, which is a, it, one of the larger independent bookstores. And it was a really, really, really fun transaction because I got to work with um, the sellers and ensure that the Tattered Cover is really going to have this new, exciting, fresh ownership, taking it into, uh, you know, into the new generation. And so being able to be involved, and that's one of the reasons I really do like quite a bit of construction projects. Again, there's just more tangible yeah. to it. Um, 
but I, I feel like I've accomplished something at the end of the day, even though it's a small part. The, the work has largely been done by the entrepreneur, but I get to be there and and sit across the table and, and ask them what they're going to do, um, you know, and and what what do you get to do now that you're riding off into the proverbial sunset? And that's a really, really fun position to be in as a lawyer and one that most lawyers don't get to enjoy. Yeah, agree 100%. I, I, I talk about that with what we do, quite honestly. My 20-year-old son, like I've mentioned, is here in the studio. And I remember a few years ago, he said something to the effect of, Dad, what you do for a living has got to be the most boring thing in the world, right? And, and now he's matured a little bit and he's realizing, gosh, you know what? What dad does might be fun and he does yeah. have an impact on people's lives and their businesses and their families. And so, you know, there's there's an interest now in, in learning a little bit more about, which is part of why he's here. But, you know, I, I share that same same joy. I mean, honestly, Landon and I yeah. have talked about this, watching people grow their businesses and turn it into something is very rewarding. Just managing money for somebody, eh, mm -hmm. I don't get super excited about that. You know what no. I'm saying? And so, I mean, again, we manage money. We handle people's investments. We do a very good job at it, but it's not, that's not what gets me excited. It's about helping no. them accomplish their goals. And and that's that's right. It's really fun. I mean, I you know I've had I've had people who I had one client that we closed the deal. This was a few years ago, but it was right around the holidays, and so he had five, like seventeen to twenty five year old grandchildren, and he bought all of them a Prius. He was so excited, <laughs> about it. and he was out there shopping for his bows and. I just thought this is so much fun. And um, I actually, I just had a client call me the other morning. I was uh, lying in bed, having a cup of coffee. It was the weekend and a dear client of mine called and he said, well, it's the one year anniversary of our transaction and it couldn't be going any better. And I just wanted to tell you how appreciative I am. And I said, oh my gosh, this just made my day. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's awesome. fun to be involved in that. Yeah. Landon, bring us home. Yeah, perfect. Uh, a perfect uh, note to uh, end the conversation. So, Jenny, this has been uh, a lot of fun. You clearly have a, a deep uh, passion and excitement for what you do. And uh, Austin, I <coughs> excuse me, certainly look forward to uh, staying staying connected with you in the future. But for our guests, um, I mean, excuse me, for our, our listeners and our followers. How do they get in touch with you if they want to have a conversation with you? Absolutely. So my law firm is www.sussexlawfirm.com. My email is jcohen, J-C-O-H-E-N, at sussex, S-U-S-S-E-X-L-A-W-F-I-R-M.com. And I would love to talk with anyone. I am always interested if nothing else, I'd love just learning about how people got involved in these different businesses. It's pretty exciting. There's always a pretty good story to it. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Well, Jenny, um, really appreciate you uh, making the effort and the time to come on and chat with us. I have no doubt uh, our, our listeners will get some value out of this. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy New Year, everyone. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals 
specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.